you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to John chapter 10. Um, this is my third time trying to preach this passage. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we had the winter storm, and so we had an ice delay, and so we didn't do that. And uh, last minute, I called Pastor Billy, and I'm like, hey, we need to do something. Can you put something online? And he rose to the occasion and, then, and did that. Last week, I was, again, prepped and planning on coming, and then uh, my daughter, uh, two-month-old, uh, was sick, and we had to stay home with her. So once again, calling Pastor Billy up and ha having him put something together, and he had a phenomenal message last week for us out of Nehemiah that was such an encouragement. But we're going to be in John chapter 10, and before we start, I wanted to share a story that my mom told me before. It may, might be a story that you've even heard, but it's this story. It happened a long time ago in which there was this very famous actor. He was an orator that people would travel to listen to him. And what he would do is he would do all of these famous Shakespearean monologues or soliloquies. He would, he would quote poetry and he had this voice that was powerful, and people would listen to him. And at the end of every single night, he would finish the evening by quoting Psalm 23. And he would start, the Lord is my shepherd. And people would just be listening to him. And when he was done, they would give him a standing ovation because of the beauty in which he quoted the psalm. Well, he kept on doing this night after night, until one night, one of the stagehands, just a young boy, came up to him and asked, Hey, do you think tonight I could quote Psalm 23 at the end? And the actor looked at him and he's like, Well, do you, do you have any formal training? No. Do, do you, have, have you done this before? Have you, have you acted anywhere? Do you have any experience? No. But, but I really want to be able to, to do this. You know, and, and, and the orator's looking, and he had a good heart in this, and he's thinking, man, this guy's going to be buried. Everyone's just heard everything that I've done. Then he's going to stand up and do this. It's, it's not going to go anywhere. But he's like, you know what? He's worked here for a while. Sure, I'll give him a shot. So he finishes his evening. He's done all of these great things. He's done these things. He's gotten ovation after ovation. And then he calls the stagehand. He leaves, goes off to the side, and the stagehand comes up to tell the Psalm 23. He finishes the Psalm 23. There's no standing ovation, but there's not a dry eye among the entire audience. The boy comes off of the stage, and the orator is just beside him, himself. He's like, what, what did you do? What happened? How did you do that? And the young boy looked at him and said, you know Psalm 23, but I know the shepherd. That made all the difference. One man knew the passage. He could memorize, he had it memorized, he could say it with power. But the young man knew the shepherd. Throughout the Gospel of John, we've been looking at this idea, who is Jesus? But this is not just some theoretical conversation where you should be able to take a test and answer the questions, multiple choice, who is Jesus? Is Jesus the Son of God? Oh, there we go. Is Jesus a demon? Nope, that's the Pharisee's answer. Is Jesus a liar? Nope, Pharisee's answer. It's not just so that we could pass a test. It's so that we could come to know Jesus. When we hear that story, the person we want to identify with is the young man. We want to think of ourselves as, uh, yeah, 
I'm the person who could stand up and people would say, that person knows the shepherd. The problem is, knowing something is really difficult at times for us to define. When you talk to someone about, hey, do you know this? Lots of people say yes, but they mean it in different ways. For example, I might talk, be talking to someone, and I'm like, hey, you, you know Michael Jordan, right? You know about Michael Jordan. And they would be, maybe they're a huge fan, and they're like, absolutely. And they could just start listing all the details from the Wikipedia page of who Michael Jordan is, all the things that he's done, his best works, all of those things. But they don't know Michael Jordan. They know about him. On the other hand, we might have an anecdote knowing someone. For example, you might have met someone famous, had some kind of interaction with them, and you talk about them all the time. Uh, Some of you have had this experience with me. When I was um, a kid, my dad had the privilege of being a, leading a Bible study with the Philadelphia Flyers. And so I got to go over to one of the players' houses all the time. We, he had kids the same age, so we would hang out. We would do things together, went to school with them. And so I was friends with them. Now, the amount of or the size or proportion of that relationship compared to the proportion in which I talk about it is vastly different. If they had not been famous, I would not claim to know them to the degree that I do. And yet, because it's my favorite anecdote, I'm going to talk about it a lot. People do the same thing with Jesus. They had an experience with Jesus. They they think they met him one time. And so they talk about it of, yeah, I know Jesus, but there's no relationship. Or maybe it's just that element of acquaintance relationship. I could ask a number of you, hey, do you know my dad? And a number of you would say, yeah, we know your dad. But you don't know when you're going to see him again. You don't know when you're going to spend time with him again. You don't know the depths of his character. You don't have this formal relationship with him. And yet, because you know him, you claim, yeah, I know him. The question that we need to ask is, do we know Jesus? Our passage this morning is not only going to reveal who the good shepherd is, the works of the good shepherd, it's going to show who the true sheep are based off of how they respond to that. It's both sides working together. This is the good shepherd, which reveals who the true sheep are. Here's our big idea for this morning. God's sheep follow their good shepherd, for they know and listen to his voice. God's sheep follow their good shepherd, for they know and listen to his voice. Now, it's been a a couple weeks since we've been in John, so let me just remind you of a few things. Right now, consistently, uh, Jesus has presented who he is. But in that presentation, he's met great opposition. The Pharisees and Jewish leaders are claiming he is a liar. They are telling others to not follow him. In chapter 9, we even saw the Jewish leaders abusing their power and removing people from the temple based on how they responded to Jesus. So did something go wrong? Did Jesus not present himself the right way? No. This was to be expected. 
Selinda read for us Ezekiel 34, and in Ezekiel 34, God condemns the shepherds of Israel for neglecting their duties. He talks to the shepherds, and yet a few times in the chapter, he's addressing the shepherds and then says there were no shepherds. Why? Because they weren't doing their job. That's what we have seen so far in the Gospel of John. You have these people whose responsibility is to be shepherds, under shepherds, not the shepherd, but under shepherds, to lead the people of God into recognizing Christ. But they don't. They lead them astray. They are not shepherds. And so God says in Ezekiel 34.10, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths and that they may not be food for them. And then God says an incredible thing. Because you could look at this and say, well, what's going to happen to the sheep? But God then says, I will be their shepherd. But if you're a student of Scripture, if you know the story of Scripture, there's a question for us that comes up of how is that going to happen? Because since the fall, we've been separated from God. How is God going to be with dirty and smelly sheep if he's holy? That question is something that throughout all of the story of the Old Testament, we're wondering, how is God going to make this work? But he gives that promise in Ezekiel 34, verses 23 through 24. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. In Ezekiel, God gives the promise. How is this going to work? I'm going to send my servant David to be their shepherd. The person he's talking about is Jesus, the descendant of David, the one who will sit on the throne of David. And so when we come to our passage, we see now the revelation of this shepherd. Who was the shepherd that God was going to send? It is Jesus. And what we're going to see here, and you have this on your handout, is we're going to see four different works that Jesus as the good shepherd completes. So let's look now at John 10, verses 1 through 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." The first work that we see, and you can write this down in your handout, is that the good shepherd is the proprietor of the sheep. Jesus is not just some random stranger. He owns the sheep. He is their proprietor. Look what it says in verse 3. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them. 
Jesus is the proprietor of the sheep. He's not an under-shepherd. He doesn't steward the sheep. He owns the sheep. He alone can make that claim. The problem that we saw in Ezekiel 34 is that the under-shepherds were not stewarding the flock entrusted to them. So God sends the true shepherd. He sends the proprietor of the sheep. But Jesus is confronting people who are saying that he is a liar, and so he's going to demonstrate he's the true shepherd, and he's going to do this by contrasting himself with the others. The first contrast he makes is with the access to the sheep. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. A sheepfold was a place where the sheep were kept safe, often at night. Uh, you might even have a communal sheepfold where all of the different flocks from the area were brought into this one sheepfold. It was better use of resources, uh, make one big one. And there was a wall around it and then the gate. And Jesus says, those who do not enter by the door. Now, what kind of person is going to avoid the door? The type of people who shouldn't be there. Will the owner avoid the door? No. The ones who avoid that door are thieves and robbers. We can think of this example very easily. A number of you have had the uh, opportunity to travel internationally. Now, whether you're coming back to the States or flying somewhere else, what's the first thing you have to do after you get off the plane, you've got your stuff, what do you have to go through? Customs. Now, when you go through customs, they're looking at your passport, they're looking at your picture and seeing how much you've aged and how much weight you've gained. No, but they're looking at those pictures and they want to know, hey, are you who you say you are? Can you be here? Are you a threat to this country? What kind of person would avoid customs? The person that shouldn't be there. The person that is a threat to the country. Jesus is contrasting how he is going to enter versus those who have ill motivation. The ones who avoid the, the door are thieves and robbers. They do not own the sheep. They do not want the good of the sheep. They aren't climbing over the fence because they just want to pet the sheep and give them some snacks. On the other hand, though, the proprietor of the sheep knows he stands up to any scrutiny. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. He can go right through the door. The gatekeeper opens to him. Why? Because he is the rightful owner of the sheep. They belong to him. He has the right to be there. Jesus contrasts the way he comes to the sheep versus how other people come to the sheep. No one else can claim ownership like Jesus. No one else can claim to be a shepherd like Jesus. If they do, they're a thief and a robber. But Jesus also contrasts the way the true shepherd and the sheep interacts versus how those who are not the shepherd interacts with the sheep. Look at verses uh, 3b through 5. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own by name and leads them out. 
When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. First, let's look at how the good shepherd interacts with the sheep. He calls them. It says the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep. He knows which ones, are his, which ones that are his. Now, we might look at this and say, wait a second. Doesn't everything belong to God? The fact that God is the creator of everything, doesn't that imply that, he, that it all belongs to him? And in one sense, yes. Everything belongs to God. He created it. But there's a different sense in which there is a special possession. He is talking to his own sheep, the one that he has called, the ones that belong specifically to him. We see that in the Old Testament that God had his own people. We see that also in the New Testament of when he calls people into salvation. He calls them. He owns them. But how is this possible? How is it possible for the sheep to hear the voice of the shepherd? Because that is what God promised in Ezekiel 34. Again, Old Testament, we're not sure how this is going to work. How is God going to be in this relationship? How is God going to be a present shepherd for sinful sheep? Because of the incarnation. And that's where the Gospel of John starts. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word took on flesh. That's what we mean by incarnation. That Christ took on humanity. The beauty of the incarnation is that we have a shepherd that we can hear. We have a shepherd who is present because he took on flesh. But not only does he call them, he knows them. He calls his own sheep by name. How does he know us by name? Now the easy answer here for us is just to say, well, it's because he's God. You know, it, he, it's deity. He, he knows them by name because he's omniscient. He knows all things. And that's true. But there's something else here that Jesus is showing in this metaphor. How does a shepherd know his sheep by name? Because he spends time with them. Listen, I don't know if you've gone around to see sheep. They all look the same. It's not easy to tell sheep apart from each other. And yet Jesus knows them by name. Why? What's the implication? One of the things that we have to work through this metaphor is that um, even as we're thinking through shepherds, we can think of that wrongly based off of Western shepherding versus Eastern shepherding. See, Western shepherding is all about um, fenced areas. You, you herd the sheep to that area, you leave the sheep, you go do other things. Maybe you have a dog take the, the, the sheep. But you're not actually spending that much time with the sheep because they're in an enclosure. But this is different. In eastern shepherding, the shepherd is with the sheep. There's no wall. It's nomadic. And so that shepherd is spending thousands of hours with those sheep. He knows the sheep. That's the imagery that we're seeing here. Jesus is the good shepherd who not only calls them, but he calls them by name. You're not just this glob of people of like, yeah, it's just humanity. No, he knows you specifically. Again, 
we have the significance of the incarnation because we could look and say, well, yeah, but that's only for the people who were present at this time, that the shepherd was there. No, this is the significance of the incarnation. When Christ took on humanity, it was forever. He never removes his humanity. He will never stop in his role as the shepherd. This is the sacrifice that we talk about in Philippians 2, that he humbled himself to the point of taking on human flesh forever. The comfort there is that he is our shepherd. He was the shepherd then. He is the shepherd now. He calls them. He knows them. He leads them. Look what it says. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. Again, there's a richness to the metaphor here that we could miss if we're thinking about this Western idea of shepherding. And and the whole method of shepherding that we see most commonly now is not leading, but herding. Right? Herding. Not hurting. He, that we, what we see is you get dogs. You have shepherds. You, when you look at pictures of, of shepherds, modern shepherds around us, what you see is here's the flock and here's the shepherd and the dogs pushing the sheep. But if you look at different videos of how it's done in the Middle East, the image switches. You will always have a shepherd at the front That shepherd that's walking in front of the sheep, where the sheep hear him, they recognize it, and they follow him. What we have here is that we have a shepherd who leads us, who goes before us. Again, we have a comfort that we can see in the incarnation. Jesus is not just telling us to do things that he never did. He's not hurting us. He's not telling us to go somewhere where he himself has not already gone. No, Jesus leads us. This is what we see in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The comfort of the incarnation is that this shepherd is not telling us to go do things that he would never do. No, in fact, this shepherd is always leading us to places we've never been. But he's going there first. And he will go further than we could ever go. That's a comfort for us. So how do the true sheep respond to the true shepherd? The sheep follow him for they know his voice. This confirms who the true shepherd is because they know it's really him, but it also reveals the true sheep. Only the true sheep follow him. Only the true sheep can follow him. See, a principle for us is that the only right option when you recognize the call and the voice of the shepherd is that you follow him. That's what we do. If you know the shepherd, it means that you follow him. So we've seen how the shepherd and the sheep interact, but how about the stranger? What well, says a stranger, they will not follow, for they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. No stranger has the right to call the sheep. No stranger truly knows the sheep. No stranger can lead the sheep. They don't own the sheep. 
And so the sheep do not listen. So here's, here's the application for us. Do you know Jesus as the proprietor of the sheep? The temptation is that what we most often are, tempt, are, are, are drawn towards is not to see Jesus as the proprietor of the sheep, but to see him as a partner to the sheep. Hey, no, you know, you're the shepherd, but we're kind of working at this together. So sometimes you'll make decisions. Sometimes I'll make decisions. We can partner in this. No shepherd partners with sheep. Do you know Jesus as the proprietor of the sheep? That's the relationship he's talking about. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep, calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And the sheep follow him for they know his voice. We must know Jesus as the proprietor of the sheep and follow him. But that's not all. Do you know Jesus as the only proprietor of the sheep? Again, look what it says. A stranger they will not follow. This can be hard because there are so many things that are calling for your attention. There are so many thieves and robbers that are telling you, this is, you need to follow my voice. Now, what's the implication? What do we see here? The sheep can differentiate between different voices. The only way you're going to be able to do that is if you are spending time with the shepherd. Listen, strangers and false teachers are hard to recognize. If you are not saturating yourself with the word of God consistently, then you're not going to be able to recognize it. Look, there's, there's even an element where Paul warns them about this, even within the church. Hey, evaluate what your, your under-shepherd is saying to you. Know what I'm saying. Don't just take what I say at face value. Evaluate it. Wait, is this under-shepherd saying what the great shepherd says? Absolutely, there are elements that can help us. There are good books that we can read. There are our brothers and sisters who can encourage us. There is the word, there, there is preaching and expositing the word of God. There is a church setting. All of those things are helpful. But if you are not going directly to the source, then you are going to be hindered. You need to recognize the true voice by hearing consistently the true voice. God's sheep Follow their good shepherd, for they know and listen to his voice. Jesus is the proprietor of the sheep. And then at the very end of this part, there's, a, there's this little aside from John that kind of tells us about the listeners who, who are hearing what Jesus is saying. And it says this in verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. It's a little ironic, right? Jesus just said, hey, if you... The true sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. They know the voice and they follow it. And then John tells us, yeah, they, they didn't understand what he said. What's that saying? What's that showing us? These were not the sheep. So now let's look. We've seen Jesus as the proprietor. Now let's look at the next two things that we'll see together about the good shepherd. The good shepherd is the protector and provider of the sheep. You can write that down. Good, the good shepherd is the protector and provider of the sheep. Let's look at John 10 verses 7 through 8. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. We have here in the gospel of John our third I am statement 
that then has a predicate following it. I am the door of the sheep. Now, we might be confused here because we're like, wait, didn't Jesus go through a gate in the last paragraph and now he's the door, but he's the shepherd door? Now, here's one of the things we need to understand. This isn't a parable in which you have one consistent story. This is an object lesson. Jesus is using an object and trying to explain his role and all of the different things he does. So first, we talked about seeing how do we recognize the true shepherd And now Jesus is going to do something different. He's going to show a different contrast. How do we recognize who the true sheep are versus those who aren't? And so Jesus now, before there was a door that revealed him, now he is the door that reveals. So look what this does. What we're going to see here is that Jesus is the door who protects Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Now, when it comes to this verse, there are some different views on how we understand this verse. Now, let me just put this out there first. Both views are supported biblically, okay? So, whichever view you land on, you can have confidence that there is still an element where there are other places in the Bible that teach that view, However, I'm going to have my view that I think best works in the context of this passage. The first view is to look at when it says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, to see that phrase as chronological. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. What is Jesus saying? Anyone who came before and claimed to be the shepherd, anyone who did these things, they were not the shepherd. Just like the ones in, that came into the sheepfold that didn't come through the door, they were thieves and robbers. Here we see the same thing. And what we see is that then Jesus is contrasting how he comes versus the others. But I, I, and, and that fits. That's just not the way that I see it. The other way that we can read this is that we can see all who came or come before me locationally. All who come before the door. Now, we look at that, and we, just like in English, just grammatically, the word before, the preposition before, in Greek and in English, can be used either for time or place, right? We, we talked about, um, hey, you know, I could tell my kids, before you go to bed, I want you to brush your teeth, and then I'm going to pray with you. Before, chronological. But we sang earlier this morning, before the throne of God above. We talk about Jesus, the high priest, who is before the throne. That's not time, that's place. Now, you might be looking and saying, yeah, okay, so how do we tell the difference, how the preposition is being used? Well, we look at the context. And you could look at it and say, well, the verb there is all who came before in the past. That's our clue. That's showing that it's chronological. But here's the issue. When it comes to Greek, there are different tenses that we just don't have in English. And one of those tenses is very purposefully ambiguous about time. It's not really making a a claim about time. It's just making a true statement. The verb here functions that way. And so what we look here then is, what we ask is, okay, what's going on here? What's the purpose? Well, Jesus two times in this passage is going to say, I am the door. He says it here, I am the door of the sheep, and then he makes the statement, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Now, if it's just chronological, those don't really fit together, 
Jesus could have made any of his statements. He could have said, I am the light of the world. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. I am the bread of life. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Because it's not, it doesn't make a difference because it's chronological. It, Jesus is who he is, but these are things that happened before. But it changes if we're talking about a place. I am the door. All who come before this door are thieves and robbers. One of the difficulties we have with the chronological side is that we have to justify the word all. All who came before Jesus are thieves and robbers. John the Baptist was a thief and robber. Moses was a thief and robber. And And we get around that by justifying and saying, no, this is what Jesus is talking about. But if it's a place, we don't have to justify it. What is Jesus saying? All who came, all who come before me are thieves and robbers. Does anyone come before the door of Christ as anything different than a thief and robber? I came before Jesus as a thief of his glory. I came as a robber of his service. I offered my service to idols. But then Jesus takes this hopeless, universal reality. All who came before are thieves and robbers, which we would understand reading the Old Testament that Jesus could function as a wall that blocks us from access to God because we are thieves and robbers. We do not deserve to be in his presence. So Jesus could come and say, I am the wall, all who come before me. But that's not what he says. He says, I am the door. So yes, when you came before me, you were a thief and a robber. But he says, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. How is it possible for someone to come, go from a thief and a robber and become one of the sheep? It depends on how you come to the door. The thieves and robbers, which are all of us, all, but those all who come before the door and refuse to enter, how you respond to that door, that makes all the difference. And it can seem hopeless, like what are we going to do? We're separated from God. But this is the hope. All who come before the door, this is the universal offering. If you come through this door, it is then that you may become one of the sheep. What we also see then is that Jesus is not only the door that protects because he protects us in revealing the identity of others. You know, it's hard to know who the thieves and robbers are. But Jesus gives us a test. We didn't really have that in the first one because it's kind of hard. Wait, how did they gain access? But here's the clear test. If someone comes to you and tells you that they are a shepherd and yet they have not entered through Jesus Christ, they're lying. This is our number one test in revealing who the true sheep are. How did they respond to Jesus? That offers protection. But the other thing that we see in this door is that it is a door that provides. The greatest thing that it provides is salvation. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will 
be saved. Jesus is the door that provides the greatest protection of salvation. But the other side that we see here is that he is not only the one that saves, but that he he allows us to go in and out and find pasture. The contrast there is that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, Jesus doesn't just provide the bare minimum. You know what? Fine, you, you can come into the fold, but go stand in the corner. Don't make a mess. You kind of smell bad, so just stay out of my way. No, he allows them to come in and out. He provides green pasture. You don't get what Jesus is offering if you don't come through the door. We must respond in faith. We must repent. We must choose to believe. That's how we go through the door. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Once again, we are presented with this truth that we can't fully comprehend. What we see here is that Jesus provides mercy and grace. Mercy, because he saves us from what punishment we deserve. We deserve the punishment of thieves and robbers, and yet he does not give us that punishment. That's mercy. But grace, because he leads us to green pastures, he sustains us, and he gives us life abundantly. A life where we can fulfill the purpose for which we were created. A life in which the, the curse of sin is reversed. Where we can be willing participants of God's plan. What's what's the implication of all of this? The first implication is that you must respond to this truth. Not only do you need to come to Jesus, but you need to enter through Jesus. This is that difference of people who claim to know him because they know things about him. Thieves and robbers can know things about a door. But if you don't enter through Jesus, it makes no difference. You need to enter through him. It's not enough to just know things about him. You must actually believe in him. We must enter through him. Here's the second implication. Stop letting the world determine your life as a Christian. Here's what I mean by this. Jesus said that the thieves came only to steal and kill and destroy do you think that, the, that unbelievers, the goal of unbelievers is to make you feel better about your faith? It's not. It's to steal, to kill, and to destroy. This happens all of the time. Do you know what, how people often and how, some, how we often come to the point of describing salvation? Oh, man, it's just, it's so restrictive. It's all of these rules I need to follow. I can't do the things I want to do. Oh, it's, it's because I'm, I'm, oh, if you need that to cope and survive, you know, if that's what you need, but implying, like, you're a weak person. And we think about this, even when we're talking about this door, we're thinking, wait a second. I'm entering this door, and I'm probably going to be trapped inside of this, like, small enclosure. And, man, freedom seems like the outside. This is a lie that has been told for millennia. We can look back and see it in Genesis in the story of Noah. What is everyone telling Noah? You're an idiot. You're crazy. Why are you building this boat? Think about what they thought, they thought when he goes into the boat. 
And then the irony, and I'm not saying that this is the, the illusion that Jesus is making this text, but it's interesting. What happens when Noah goes into the boat? God closes the door. Now you're on the outside. It's way bigger. You're free. You're in the world. You're looking, this guy's an idiot. He just locked himself with a bunch of smelly animals. And he closed, and, and it's a door he can't even open himself. How long did they think that? Until God's judgment began. The world is going to look at what Jesus does as protection for you and think it's captivity until they receive God's judgment. Changed real fast for all the people that were looking at Noah once that rain started. That, that captivity started looking a whole lot more like protection than what they were claiming before. But here's the other part that we get wrong with these texts is that we think that we go into the ark, we think that we go in through the door to the sheepfold, and we st we're stuck there. But that's not the case in either of the times. What happens later for Noah? God opens the door and brings them out to a green pasture. In our passage, it says they will go in and out to green pastures. Jesus doesn't keep us captive in this place of protection. He knows what is best. That's the comfort that we have. Don't let unbelievers, don't let the, 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 the beliefs of this world steal your joy in Christ because they say you are always going to be captive in there. No, what you tell them is no. I have a God who is wise enough to know when I need to be protected and when I need provision. I don't know that. I don't know what's coming, but he does. And I have a God that knows when I need to come in and the door needs to be shut versus when I need to be led out to green pastures because my God came so that I could have life abundantly. So do you know Jesus as your proprietor? Do you know Jesus as your protector? Where are you seeking protection? Where, what things are you placing your hope in that this is what will keep me safe? Do you know Jesus as your provider? Where are you seeking provision? It's only in Jesus that you can be protected. It's only in Jesus that you can have what provided for you what you truly need. So far, we've seen Jesus as the proprietor. We've seen Jesus as the protector. We've seen Jesus as our provider. But there's something missing. Because at this point, this sounds really great. But the question we ask is, how's he going to do this? Right now, it's just a claim. I'm the proprietor. I, like, he's claiming ownership over these people. I'm the protector. I'm claiming I'm going to protect you. I'm claiming I'm going to provide for you. How? If we know the, the depth of depravity of our sin, how is Jesus going to do this? That's the last part that we're going to see. It's because the good shepherd is the propitiation of the sheep. The pro word propitiation means wrath-absorbing sacrifice. All of the other three things that we've seen, Christ as proprietor, Christ as protector, Christ as provider, all of those things are founded on the truth that Christ is our propitiation. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. 
the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is our fourth I am statement. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Here's the thing, though. All of the metaphors so far have made earthly sense. Okay, yeah, someone, a uh, thief and robber is going to avoid the main door. Yeah, uh, the door does protect the sheep. It also provides a way for the sheep. All of those things, the listeners at that time are like, yeah, that makes sense until we get to here. I am the good shepherd. All right, I'm following you, Jesus, who lays down his life for the sheep. No, nope. you lost me. Th- this, this doesn't make sense. See, see, if, 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 I, if you ever ask me to watch one of your pets or something like that, I'm going to tell you right now, you're never going to hear me say, I will protect them with my life. <laughs> it's not going to happen. All right? No shepherd should give their life for sheep. Now, there might be a shepherd who's willing to do it. And in fact, what we see here going on is that Jesus talks about this difference between him and others. When he talks about the hired hand, this is what he says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, again, proprietor, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. He does not protect them. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them Nothing's provided for them. They're going to die. He, de- he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I kind of agree with the hired hand. I look at that and I'm like, that makes sense. It's sheep. I'm not going to die for sheep. You know, I see something that's coming that could kill me. I'm taking off. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm not pressing the metaphor too hard when I say it makes no earthly sense to die for the animals. It makes no earthly sense for the shepherd to die for the sheep. But one of the th- because one of the things we do wrong is to elevate humanity too far. Oh, you know, th- well, again, that partnership thing. And we're looking at this and saying, yeah, it makes sense for Jesus to die for me. It doesn't. You don't bring things to the table where that makes sense. So why does he do it? It says... I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. But then look at how the connection he makes. Just as, and this should floor us, just as my father knows me and I know my father, the foundation of his relationship, the correlation he's making is, I know the sheep just like I know God the Father. They know me. I have a relationship with them. I love them. We've seen them that in John, not only the love of Jesus, the Son, the love of the Father, for God so loved the world. Why is he doing it? It's not because it makes earthly sense. It's because he loved us. And he bases that foundation on his own relationship with the Father. There is no closer relationship than Jesus with the Father. And yet he says, just as I know them, I know them just as I know the Father. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
Now, here's one of the things, again, that, that, that is just incredible for us because now the blessing doesn't just stay for the ones that are hearing it. It expands. Look at verse 12. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Who's he talking about? Us. We were not part of the fold. But now, because of this shepherd who brings others in, if you enter through the door, then you are one of the sheep. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. For no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my own Father. Look at how much Jesus talks about laying down his life. Now one of the things that we might get wrong here is saying, oh, for this reason the Father loves me, and we're like, oh man, that seems abusive. God is going to say, I love you, but only if you do this. Like, you see that manipulation all the time in human relationships. I'll love you depending on what you get me for Christmas. I'll love you depending on how you do this. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is describing the depth of their relationship, that they are in perfect harmony. For this reason, God loves me because there is nothing I wouldn't do according to the plan that both of us have decided on. I am in perfect harmony with God. For this reason, God, the Father loves me because I am doing the plan that was established. But look at all of these things. No one takes it from me. The Jews, Satan, they might think in a few chapters that they succeeded and they won. That's not how it works. Here's one of the things, again, that, that this, where this metaphor seems off to us. So, okay, we've, we've, we can think of King David, shepherd. What did David fight? A lion, a bear. Right? We look at those things, and he won against them. Now, again, me, I'm running away. But David, it's his sheep. He possesses those sheep. He protects them. He provides them. He fights against the lion and bear. What would we say if he had lost? Would we say he won? No. What happens? Do the sheep still have a proprietor? No. He's dead. Do they have a protector? No. Do they have someone who will provide for them? No. So we look and we say, wait a second, Jesus, I'm not sure how this is going to work. You just said all these things that you're going to do as the shepherd, but then you just said that you're going to die, and it's not because someone took your life, but you're giving your life. That doesn't make sense to us because anywhere else we look, we see when a shepherd dies, it's defeat. But when Christ dies, it's victory. Why does Jesus do all of this? I lay my da down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So let's look at these things that Jesus does. How is Jesus the proprietor? Because he bought the sheep with his blood. How is Jesus the protector? Because he absorbs the wrath of God. He protects the sheep from the wrath. How is Jesus the provider? Because through his death, burial, and resurrection, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. How is Christ the good shepherd? 
because the good shepherd is the propitiation of the sheep. At the beginning of our message, the question I asked was, do you know Jesus? Unfortunately, many claim to know who he he is, but they are deceived. At the end of our passage, we see people who are face-to-face with the good shepherd, but they don't recognize him. They hear his words, but they do not know his voice. Look at verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? We can look at both of those groups of people and say, ah, well, one of them at least is close, but that's not it. Close, Close doesn't work. You need to go through the door. You need to know who he is. Look at what they, how it describes them. Verse 20, he has a demon and is insane. And here's the, the, the lynch point. Why listen to him? Let me just look through back through our whole passage. In verse 3, the sheep hear his voice. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. They don't follow strangers for they do not know the voice of strangers. The thieves and robbers, the sheep, did not listen to them. Later on, I am the good shepherd. My own know me. I must bring also others who are not in this fold, and they will listen to my voice. And then we reach the end, and the people are saying, why listen to him? These people did not know Jesus. The most important question I can ask you this is this. Do you know Jesus as your propitiation? If you don't know Jesus as your propitiation, you don't know him as your proprietor, you don't know him as your protector, you don't know him as your provider. It is only through his work of propitiation. Many believe they know Jesus based off of a Wikipedia knowledge. Hey, I know the big things that he did. I can list off his his miracles that he did. I can can recite his favorite um, sayings. But there's no relationship. Or they might even have an anecdote element. Oh man, I went to camp this one time and I just had this really great experience. And I talk about it all the time. But that's it. The entire relationship is built off of this one experience. There's nothing else there. They don't know him. Maybe it's an acquaintance relationship. Yeah, no, I've, I've, we've, I hang, we hang out with the same people. I hang out with the same people that hang out with Jesus. Go to church with them. But you don't know when you're going to meet him again. You don't know when you're going to spend time with him again. That's not the knowing that we're describing. The knowing we're describing is a deep relationship. It's a covenantal relationship. So my question is, do you know Jesus? Do you know his voice? Do you follow his lead? Have you entered through the door? Do you know him as your propitiation? Have you repented from being outside the door as a thief and robber and said, God, this is who I am. And so I need you. I need your blood to cleanse me. If you have not done that and you want to know more about that, please talk to me. Talk to any of the members of our church. They can talk to you more about that. Here's the question then for the believers as well as the worship team comes up. Are you acting as one who belongs to the good shepherd? Are you acting as his possession? 
Are you running towards and remaining in his presence? Are you saturating yourself with his word in order to recognize his voice? When you hear his voice, are you following it? Do you see yourself as the possession of Christ? Are you embracing his protection? Both from the wrath of God, but also from thieves and robbers. Do you, do, don't let the world steal your joy in Christ and tell you things that aren't true about Christ's protection. Embrace the protection he provides. Are you thriving in the provision of his pastures? Do you love the still waters he leads you to? Do you relish the green pastures? Do you trust him through the valley of death? Christ is our good shepherd. God's sheep follow their good shepherd for they know and listen to his voice. And the only reason any of that can happen is because the good shepherd is our propitiation. May it be said of each of us, not only do we know his word, but that we know the shepherd.